I want to uh, just tell you it's a, it's a privilege to be here. It's, uh, I'm always humbled whenever I have the opportunity to, uh, to preach and to share God's word. It's, a, it's an honor, but it's a great responsibility. And uh, This morning, I'd like us to uh, look at a passage of scripture in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And uh, it's a um, passage of scripture in uh, it's chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be, uh, I'm going to be reading verses 28 through 34, but I'd like to, if you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like you to uh, keep your finger in Mark chapter 12 as we'll be referring to uh, throughout the passage of Scripture through that whole chapter, uh, here, or most of that chapter this morning. So if you have your Bibles and follow along, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. And I'm going to be starting with verse 20, <clears throat> 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one beside, other beside him. And to love him with all the heart with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is asking his disciples to do just a, basically two things. And the first one is to repent from their sins. He asks everyone, all of us, repent from our sins. That was his whole purpose because he wanted to have a relationship with mankind. And because of sin, that relationship was hindered. And so the message that Jesus Christ brings is the message of, of repentance. But also he's calling individuals to, uh, to faith in him, to place their faith unswervingly towards him to, in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, and to live that way. And so repenting of our sins is not enough, but we're to serve him and we're to uh, put our, our trust in him. And he's still calling individuals to this day to do the same thing. And he's reminding us each and every day, hey, I'm the Lord of everything. I want you to be a part of my kingdom. And you can't get there on your own. There's only one way to the Father, the scripture tells us, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ taught that, proclaimed that, lived it out, and tried to convince people that he was the Messiah, he was God's son, he was the redeemer of mankind. 
His desire was to bring all men and all women to the point of repentance and to faith in him. But that's not just a one-time event that takes place in our lives, but it's a, it's a daily thing every day as we commit ourselves to the Lord to serve him and to follow him. Now, as a way of background to what we look at here in this, in this passage of Scripture in, in Mark chapter 12, I'd like for us to, if you have your Bibles, to go back and go back to the beginning of this, of this chapter. Previous to this, in chapter 11, is when Jesus uh, entered into, uh, into uh, Jerusalem. His triumphal entry begins there in the beginning of chapter 11. And then we find also where he cleanses the temple. And, uh, of course, at the end of chapter 11 is where Jesus' authority is being questioned, as it always was. He was constantly being examined by the religious leaders of the day. Being religious didn't uh, make them right, but they thought they were, and so the Jewish leaders would constantly trying to be examining what, whatever he had to say. And despite the fact that he proved to be perfect, they did not accept who he was, they did not accept him as the Messiah, as the chosen one, as God's only son. And so they rejected that truth, but every chance they had, they had, had an opportunity, they would question him. And each time that he, he uh, answered them, their questions, every time they challenged him, he revealed even more and more about their own sins in their hearts. So cha- chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 12, we, we find where there's a parable that he tells. I'm not going to go into the depth of the parable, but what he basically is in this parable, he talks about a man who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, he dug a pit, had a wine press, and he went away, but he, he basically lent this out, rented it out to some other people. And uh, it was still his, but these people decided that they, they wanted it themselves, and they didn't send him any money. And so when he sent some of his workers some of his people back to collect from them. A number of different occasions, they, uh, they beat the person and sent him back. And then we find even other places that tells us in this parable that Jesus explains that some of them were even, even killed. And so it tells us in this parable that he sent his son, his, his uh, beloved son, and they uh, sent him and they killed him as well. And so... The master comes back and takes what had been theirs away from them, and they're punished because of what they have done. Now, just a little background on that. In Leviticus, in chapter 19, it it tells what the rules were on lending out uh, your vineyard or your, your, your business and all about harvesting and all that. So there was all kinds of rules that the Pharisees knew very well, uh, knew very well, and so they, as these uh, tenants are stripped of their rights to this land, they begin to think, and they begin to uh, realize that this parable was about them. And he even goes to the point of taking uh, quotes from Psalm 118, which was a messianic psalm promising uh, the, the Messiah coming, 
And he applies himself to the image in that. If you look in verses, uh, verse, the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, it says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He refers to himself, makes it obvious that he believes that he, he knows that he is the, the cornerstone, and he's affirming the fact that he is the Messiah. For the religious leaders of the day, this was blasphemous. They didn't like it at all, and he certainly didn't endear himself to them. And so they're very upset. If you look in verse 12, you'll see that they even want to uh, arrest him. But it says that he, they, the, the people, uh, they feared the people, for the people perceived that he had told the parable against them. How perceptive of them. So they, they left and went away, but they weren't gone for long, and so that brings us to the next passage uh, there in verses 13 through 17. We find the first encounter of where they, uh, the religious leaders of the day begin to question Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They came to him, and um, they have a... a they have a scenario for him. It's not really a question. It's a, it's a very complex situation. And they begin to, uh, begin to talk about um, the situation of a, a, a person dying, what happens with the, their, uh, their mate, and then it's a whole complex series of uh, interactions. And uh, Jesus is quite wise to what they're doing. But it's interesting, if you look in verse 13 of that, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't get along. They didn't like each other at all. And yet they pulled their resources together. They're figuring they can trap Jesus uh, in the way he, he responds to them. And so they, they came and they put this whole scenario before him, looking for an answer. Now, the, the Herodians were a political party, and they, co they cooperated with Rome. The Pharisees, they, they were opposed to Rome, and they, they absolutely hated him. But they worked together as a committee, and so they bring this situation to, to him. Even though the Jews despised Rome because they were power over their nation. They supported idolatry. And yet, Jesus knows that if he agrees with them, that if he approve of paying taxes to Rome, he would be in trouble with his people, but he opposed the paying of taxes. Excuse me, that's what, that's what this one is about. And he says, he says to them, is it lawful? they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to, to Caesar? And he says, no, uh, they, they, that's what they want him to say. But instead, instead of trying to side with his own people, if he did, he would be in trouble with Rome. And so knowing the hypocrisy, he tells them that whatever is Caesar's is Caesar's, and you should render to Caesar all those things. So then they look at the end of that, that verse 17. They absolutely are marveled at what he has said to them. 
So that brings to the second encounter, excuse me, and that's the one with the scenario with the, uh, the marriages. And he gets all done with that in uh, verses 18 through uh, 27. And uh, we, we find here it's the Sadducees that come to him. And this is really the only time that we find uh, the Sadducees even mentioned in the Gospel of, uh, of Mark. And uh, he, as you look over this passage, this section here, the uh, Sadducees, they only accepted the, f- first, the five books of uh, Moses. They didn't believe in the resurrection of, uh, of, uh, of the body. And they did not believe in the existence of angels. You can look in, I think it's in Acts chapter 23, where they talk about that. And so um, they have this complex question that they ask him. And he he gets all done and he basically responds to them. And look at, at the end. It doesn't say anything about them marveling at him this time. Just says, listen, God is the God of, of the living and uh, basically challenges them about what they're believing. So you see that they're coming from all different aspects of trying to uh, trap Jesus. And so that brings us to the passage of Scripture that we're looking at now. And so it tells us there that a, a scribe, but a scribe was a person who uh, basically just wrote down and copied the Scriptures. Uh, they probably read the scriptures probably more than any other, any other person around. They probably read the scriptures maybe even more than the Pharisees. Well, the scribe hears what's going on. The scribe decides he's going to come and he's going to uh, ask a question of Jesus. He hears them disputing and he comes and he doesn't come with any kind of complex question like the previous one. He comes with a simple question and that's this. Which commandment is most important of all. And probably if the Pharisees had been asked this question, they would, have, uh, they would have argued about this. They probably all would have different ideas. It was um, approximately at the time about 613 commandments found in the law. Out of those uh, 613, 365 of them were negative commands and 248 of them were positive so out of those, they say, what is the greatest command of them all? Good question. Here he is trying to trap Jesus. And even though the scribe's question is quite clear, as I read it, as I look at it, I wonder whether he really was sincere with this question. And Jesus gives him a very clear answer. He says, this is what's most important. And he begins with quoting from Deuteronomy chapter chapter 6. Now these verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can look at them some other time, but these are what are called, what's called the Shema. And it is the statement of faith for the Jews. To this day, they still believe it. They still quote it. They still say it. As a matter of fact, it's an it's a essential, basic creed of the Jews, and they say it every day, um, those that are Orthodox Jews. And it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our, our God, the Lord is one. 
Every Jewish child learned that from a very early age. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'll answer your question, but I'm going to use information that you already know. You'll notice in that passage of Scripture, as a matter of fact, we, we sang a song this morning that went right along with this exactly. There's four alls in this passage of Scripture. Look at verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. All. When I look at that and I read that, I realize how demanding that is. To love with that kind of commitment is not a superficial relationship. It's a reminder for me of how important my relationship with God is and how important your relationship with God is. If you want to know about the commandments that we find in the scriptures, the first one is this. Basically, Jesus is saying, how much do you really love God? That's first and foremost. It's not how much you know of the scriptures. It's not what you do on the Sabbath day. First question is this. How much do you love God? A number of years ago, I'm going to age myself, but I guess I, I'm not going to age myself. Ron already did that. Dave Ross, Pastor Dave, taught us a, a course. I don't know if any of you remember it. Probably you're not going to want to admit it because you don't want to admit you were around then. But he taught us a little course. It's called Love is Something You Do. I don't know if anybody remembers. I, I, I have memories of Dave playing that during intermission of the Northern Lights Youth Choir with the upright bass. He played the upright bass and sang. But love is something you do. It's not always something you feel, but it's real. Love is something that you do. It's not that feeling that you have in your tummy. It's not doing something spiritual. But it's total devotion to God. That's what this love is all about. It's not about obeying certain commandments. It's not just saying I'm going to do the first commandment, but love is knowing God's commandments and loving him so much that I'm going to follow them. For a person to say I'm totally committed to God, body, soul, and mind, means that I'm totally committed to everything that he's commanded. I'm committed to what he says about lying. I'm totally committed to what he says about marital fidelity. I'm totally committed to not coveting another person's possessions. I'm totally committed in every aspect of God's word. 
That's overwhelming. Love is lived out in the fulfilling and obedience to the commands of God. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. I'll admit to you right now, I have a struggle with that. I don't keep God's commandments. If I did, I would love him even more. I struggle with loving God because I, I do my own thing. But then on top of all this, as he says this to this, this scribe, who knows God's word because he writes it all the time, he goes on and he adds a little bit more. In verse 31, he, he, he muddies the water even more, where he says this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Leviticus 19, verse 18 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if we love God, we not only show it in the way that we obey him in his commandments, but Jesus closely ties in the fact that we need to love our neighbor. So what's the greatest commandment? When we walk away today from this place, what's the greatest commandment? Look at all the alls there. There's four of them. And then add your neighbor. I have found this over the years that um, it's not easy to love your neighbor. I'm not going to share with you who my neighbors are, but I tell you, over the years, it's not been easy to always love my neighbors. They have kids that have issues. They have dogs that have come in my yard. I even had cows eat my wife's flowers. It's not easy to love your neighbor, but, you know, interesting thing he doesn't talk about is he doesn't talk about loving ourselves. I find that I have a hard time loving my neighbor, but I also have a hard, uh, have a hard time of not loving myself. I find it's very easy for me to... Um, to live life in such a way as I, I want things my way and I, I have certain things I'd like to see happen. I want people to treat me a certain way. I expect them to treat me a certain way. I care about myself an awful lot. And really, the more I spend in this world, the more I realize that uh, the, the world kind of encourages me to, you're supposed to love yourself. But Jesus says nothing about loving me loving myself. 
The biggest problem I have, I think, sometimes, if I'm going to be honest, is that life a lot of times becomes all about me and about my needs. <laughs> so why would I love my neighbor? I'm too busy with myself. Well, we love our neighbors because, believe it or not, they're made in God's image. Not because they're the most loveliest neighbors you could ever find. Because, you know, when I stop and I think about it, and I don't very often, I'm probably not the loveliest neighbor going either. And probably if you talk to my neighbors, they would probably have a few complaints about me. You see, the image of God is distorted not only when I look at my neighbor, but when my neighbor looks at me. They don't always see Jesus Christ when they interact with me or they watch me. It's easy for me to look at other people and see that they are far removed from looking like Jesus. They're far removed from fulfilling the plans and purposes of, of God. And so because of that, sometimes it's easy for me to just ignore them. Dismiss them because they're not the way I expect them to be and they, they don't look like Jesus. The the answer is, is given to us in the, the story of the Good Samaritan. As he came along the road and he saw a man who was not like him, and he loved on him. A man that probably didn't love him. Well, it's interesting to see after Jesus says all this, in verse 32, if you follow along there in that passage of Scripture, the scribe responds to Jesus, and he says to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other beside him. I wonder he really was sincere. I, I don't know the, the ins and outs of the story. I don't know any more background than what Mark tells us, but I, I wonder if he, he said that with a look of disdain upon his face. I imagine that the Pharisees were still there and the Sadducees waiting to see what kind of answer Jesus was going to give. But I wonder if there's a little bit of an attitude. I wonder if he said, well, I'm, I'm, you've answered very well, but, you know, I'm a scribe. I'm, I know these things far better than you. But, you know, for being... For being an uneducated carpenter, you've given a pretty good answer. I, I don't know what his attitude was or his thoughts were. 
The scribe may have got the message clearly but, and quickly agreed, but I, I wonder if he really did, but it's obvious the others missed the point completely. They had a, a rather shallow view of the, the law. They didn't understand that the law was there, but it wasn't something you just do because you've got to do and obey it because other people are watching you, but it was important to be obeying from the heart out of your love for God. Now, if you wonder how Jesus felt about the scribes, you can, you can jump ahead into, further into chapter, chapter 12, and you'll, you'll see in, in, uh, in verse 38, he gives a warning and says, beware of the scribes. So I'm not sure that this scribe was all that convinced of what Jesus said, but was just being polite. He restates what Jesus says in verse 33, to love him with all your heart, with with all the understanding, which is a little different than what Jesus had put in there. With all the strength to love one's neighbor as yourself. To love him with all your heart. He too quotes the Shema. He knows all about the Ten Commandments. The beginning of the Ten Commandments said the same thing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You are this. You are one. So he knows all the words. You know, he says there's no other God. That's a struggle that the world has had. Even in today's world, Isaiah, 600 years before Christ, wrote that there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There's none beside me. It was an issue back then, and it's an issue today. To have no other God before the one and only God is not easy. What's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God, the one and only God, with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. He agrees that there's only one God. He even goes as far as saying it's even more important than all burnt offerings, and sacrifices. That's quite a bold statement to make with the Pharisees standing right there. That would almost sound blasphemous. But you see, God's not interested in just doing acts of obedience. Going through the routine of a sacrifice Sacrificial system, if your heart isn't right. Jesus could have said to him, you're, you're right, you've done well. But all he's really doing here is quoting 
the Old Testament. He's referring back to things that he already knows, that he's written and read, saying all the right words, the scribe is. He quotes 1 Samuel chapter 15 about the burnt offerings. He seems right. Sounds good. You know, I wonder how often I sound right and sound good to those who I talk to. I want to come across as better than I am. Ronnie mentioned that stories that he heard about me from my time in college. I can't remember them, and I'm sure he's forgotten them, if you ask him. But I wonder, what will people remember about me and about you? Is it just words that we say? We sing the right songs. We have the right responses. We even can quote a little bit of scripture. That brings us to the final response that Jesus gives. After the scribe has given all these answers to Jesus, Jesus says this in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, words are not enough, obedience is better than sacrifice. A wise and scriptural answer sounds very knowledgeable, but I wonder if he really believed it and took it to heart. Jesus' answer is very pointed. You are not not far from the kingdom of God. You're close. My paraphrase, you're just a few steps away. I wonder if some of the people that were watching this exchange take place, whether they were Pharisees or whether they were some of Jesus' disciples, or just some of the public, as they're watching this, I wonder if they thought to themselves, how can this possibly be? He answered correctly. Jesus didn't correct him. Jesus did not say, you're wrong. He used God's word.
reminds me of the story of the, the young man who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. He was a rich young man. He came to Jesus and he talked to Jesus about how he had kept all the commandments since he was a young boy. Seemed like a nice guy. But then Jesus asked him about giving away all his riches. And it tells us in that, that chapter 10 of Gospel of Luke that the young man went away sad. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't fulfill that first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your being, every part of you. And love your neighbor. He wanted his money. He wanted his own personal fulfillment. He had another God before the only one and true God. He didn't love God with all his heart. His money was his idol. And so in order to be a part of God's kingdom, you cannot have any other gods. You have to get rid of this idol. And so he understood that. And even though he didn't verbally say it, he, he wanted his money and didn't want God's kingdom. He wanted his money more than he wanted a relationship with God. On that occasion, if you remember, the, the disciples responded to, to Jesus this way. Well, who in the world can get saved? If you, if you got a guy like this, and he can't be in your kingdom, then who can? Jesus' response to them was this. You see, what's impossible with men is possible with God. You know, we come to this, this story here and we look at it and we say, wow, if, if this scribe is not in the kingdom of God... If Jesus is saying to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God, then who gets in? Where's the line? To me, he kind of looks like an ideal person. He knows the scriptures. He was polite to Jesus. It didn't seem maybe that he was trying to trap Jesus. He was just trying to get an explanation, and Jesus told him, and he responded well. You see, 
Jesus isn't looking for religious people for his kingdom. He proved that right off. If you look in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 2, you'll find where Jesus is, is uh, drawing in his disciples. And who does he draw in? A guy named Matthew. A tax collector. And this tax collector became one of the inner circle of Jesus' followers. Didn't take long to figure out after Jesus calls Matthew that the Jews absolutely hated tax collectors, even though they were neighbors. They hated them because of the way they treated others and went about their business. They were dishonest people. Not like you and I. And they kind of summarize it this way. Well, if you're going to pull people in to be your, your closest followers, to be your disciples, people like this, then I don't want to have anything to do with you. See, because the Pharisees were religious people. They were commandment people. They were people that, from their perspective, did everything right. They were looking for the Messiah, but Jesus didn't fit the bill because he went to Levi's house, Matthew. And you know who were in Matthew's house? Matthew's friends and neighbors. Probably a few other tax collectors along with some other sinners. Jesus' response to them was this. You're not getting it. It's not the healthy that need a physician. And I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is, is near. Repent and believe. I came to call sinners. Being religious doesn't cut it. When the scribe responds to Jesus, remember back there? In verse 32, he says, you are right, teacher. What you said is really right. So what's missing? What's missing is this. He didn't understand Jesus Christ, didn't ultimately come to teach him, but Jesus Christ came to this earth to save him. Yes, he was a teacher, The scribe responded appropriately, but he missed the fact that he was a savior, the Messiah. I don't know what happened to this scribe. You can read through the rest of the Gospel of Mark and you find no reference to him again. I don't know what happened with him. No indication whatsoever. 
But the question isn't what happened to him. The question is what happens to you and me. What about you? What about me? What would Jesus say to us? If Jesus was going to have a one-on-one, maybe not in a crowd like this poor scribe had happened to him, but if he came one-on-one with you or with me, would he say, well, George, you're close, but not close enough? You can spout off some good information. You understand the Bible. You went to Bible school. You've pastored a church. You seem to, from a lot of people's head, a lot of it down pat. But do you love me with all your heart? And it starts with admitting that you need a Savior. And oh, I so desperately do. If Jesus were here today preaching and I was sitting down there with you folks, maybe he'd remind us of Matthew chapter 7 that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. What is the will of the Father in heaven? God's desire is what? Confession and faith. In faith, we obey the will of the Father. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your being, every part of you. And you know what? I found this. If I'm not doing well with the first, I might as well forget about the second. Simple as that. So what would Jesus say? Do I have all the right answers? Does it look like I'm doing well at loving God? What happens when I add that neighbor part in? As I look through the Gospels and watch Jesus' life, I realize that, you know what? He spent more time with the people I try to avoid. Those that are a little rough on the edges that don't look like me, don't live like me. So the question is, and we're not going to close with the BG song, but how deep is your love? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about because you're young. He's not interested in how long you've gone to church. He's not interested how many church committees that you're on. He's not interested in how much money you give or even how much scripture you can quote. If you really love God, if I really love God, I will love no thing or no person more than him. That's hard. Now, really, really love other people. Same way God, through Jesus Christ, 
has loved others. Like me. That while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. How do we love like that? We can't do it on our own. But if we have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and confessed our sins, pledged our faith in him, we can do it with his help, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. What a difference it would be in my world, your world, in the world itself, if God's people could do that. To really love God. To let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven. That we really love God the way he deserves to be loved. What a difference it would make in the world. But how does that happen? By allowing God to change our hearts. To admitting I'm not where I need to be in my loving of him and of others. I don't want to be that far from the kingdom of God. I want God to know how much I love him. And those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want them to know how much God loves them through me. It can happen. But it's not by being religious. It's not by quoting scripture. It's not by going to church. Because love is something you do. You do it. You live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that my love for you and love for others is not where it ought to be. I confess, Heavenly Father, that I love you, but not as deeply as I should. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue the work in me that you began a long time ago. And I pray, dear Lord, that those that are around me, those that come in contact with me, those that I work with, that I live with, my neighbors, my friends, would begin to see more of Jesus Christ in me. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that your church here on earth would have the impact, impact that it needs to have so more people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you for your word, and I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to bless your word on our hearts. Draw us closer to you, we pray. 
Amen.